Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Thursday, August the 2nd, 2012, and this is episode 951 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, we got a cool one today. Wasn't really planned, uh, but I had a good time uh, talking to my uh, good friend Rob Gray. Uh, the executive director of American Open Currency uh, Exchange, uh, the American Open Currency System, uh, down in uh, Texas last week at the uh, Expo. And he told me he would be testifying uh, in front of Congress this week and mentioned it would be Thursday. And I didn't really think about it, but um, Thursday, today, August 2nd, uh, 2012, yeah, your buddy Jack has crossed that big threshold into the big 4-0. I am 40 years old officially today. Actually, I think officially I'll be 40 years old in a couple hours. Uh, but this is the day of my birth. I don't care. If you want to wish me a happy birthday or whatever, you can go ahead. I'll, I appreciate the sentiment, but I've never really thought that your birthday was a big deal. I guess when I was a little kid and we got stuff, I thought it was a big deal. But today I just think, like, okay, it's just another day, guys. No big deal. But for once in a while, the universe gives you a present. Yeah, and sometimes it even does it on your birthday. And that's today, because Rob Gray, I think, has already testified in front of Congress. Uh, I hoped to DVR it at home, but I think it's on C-SPAN 3, which I do not get. I'm sure there'll be recordings of it somewhere. But Rob prepared his remarks in advance, and I think that's probably a requirement, and sent me a copy two days ago, and then last night published it to his own website. So I feel no, no encumbrance in reading them to you today. His entire speech uh, or his entire testimony, however you want to look at it. But Rob is a patriot. And I thought, why not just do an entire show on the future of private barter currencies and my thoughts on how we possibly could fix the national currency system, Rob's belief that it's not possible because government inevitably will screw it up, and uh, my real concurrence that it's probably true. It doesn't mean we can't examine how we would do it. Uh, and if they won't do it, then maybe we should. And I think that's a big part of Rob's remarks. And that's what we're going to be covering today. Before I get to that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help make sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today is the only sponsor that doesn't actually sponsor the show. No, the show sponsors them. Uh, I made a decision to get rid of a sponsor earlier this year. They didn't do anything wrong. They were okay people. They had good products, and they paid their bill on time. Well, they didn't do anything with the community. I would send them emails and go, do you guys want to do a contest or a giveaway or a drawing or a, a discount for the member's support brigade or anything or have your own board on the forums or send somebody for an interview? And you know why I kicked their ass off? Because they never even responded to those emails with, yeah, we're not interested in that. If I sent them an email about a, an invoice or something, uh, yeah, they'd right back and here you go. But when I'd send in emails like that, they were just ignored. Well... Uh, in February, I was up in New Hampshire at the Free State Project, surrounded by amazing libertarians, just amazing people, a wonderful community, people that had agreed on most of the important things and had some major disagreements, but were able to discuss those disagreements completely respectfully with each other. It was amazing. And they have this goal to make New Hampshire the freest state in the union because it has such a large uh, legislative body and so few uh, people to each state representative, they chose that state. 
Uh, it's already a li liberty-leaning state, and they're trying to push it more in that direction. And you can vote with your feet by moving to New Hampshire if you want to be part of the Free State Project. So I decided at that uh, meeting that they were more worthy of the spot than the people that were paying for it. And as my gift to them, I sponsored them. So they get this slot that would normally go to a paying sponsor because I believe in so much in what they're doing. And this is from a guy that's not going to New Hampshire. I'm not going to move there. It's not in the cards for me. Part of me would really like to, but overall, I'm a Texan. And that's why we're building our new homestead back in Texas. And my wife has family there, and I have family there, and we want to be there. But the point I'm making to you is even if it's not in the cards for you to relocate to New Hampshire, it doesn't mean you can't help. This is what I'm doing. Consider what you can do. And check them out at freestate.org. All right, next up. I said that wrong. It's freestateproject.org, not freestate.org. Okay. Next up today, Harvest Eating. Chef Keith Snow. Hey, yesterday, I did this show on all this cool stuff you can grow. Sorghum for grain, mouse melons, right? And occasionally I do shows like this, you know, uh, nanking cherries and chard and all kinds of stuff that you like. You go to the grocery store and you go, it's not there, man. They don't have that stuff. And so you start growing all this stuff and it's really prolific and you get lots of it and you have all this extra production on your garden or you become really involved with your, your local farmer's market or a CSA and you get all this stuff like, you know, Armenian cucumbers, this length of your arm. And you're like, what do I do with all this stuff? Well, get on over to HarvestEating.com and tune in to Chef Keith Snow on Rural Free Delivery TV as well, uh, RFD TV. He's got his own show on there now. And, uh, again, his website, Harvest Eating. And he'll teach you to cook seasonally and cook locally. So you'll learn what to do with all this stuff. And you'll learn that cooking really is a survival skill and a life skill. And it's more about the techniques and understanding the way to put things together. And if you understand that, then you can be handed stuff you've never seen before, give it a little bit of a taste, understand what it does, understand the flavor profiles, and you can kick ass as a cook. That's what Chef Keith's all about. And he also has some great seasoning. Last night I did chicken wings. I'll tell you the secret how I did my chicken wings. I know we're going long today, but you'll get a little bit of Chef Keith in this. But most of this is Chef Jack. All right, so a little bonus segment for you here. I got about a quart of peanut oil, and I put it into a pan. And I chopped up a whole bunch of dry Thai chili peppers. Thai chili peppers. You can buy them at your local you know, Oriental Market or what have you. So Thai chili peppers, I put them in there. A whole head of garlic chopped into cloves thrown in there. And I heated that oil up just to where it began to boil, and I also threw in a big old handful of whole peppercorns. I let it sit for a couple hours after that while it was warm with the lid on it, and then I strained it back into a quart jar, so that's my oil. And then I took my chickens, chicken wings, and I basted them in that oil. And I roasted them at 425 in a roasting pan where they are picked up off the ground. Uh, so they're not laying in their own grease and oil. So every 15 minutes, so first to put them in, brushed with the oil. Take them out in 15 minutes, brush them with the oil, put them back in. After a half hour on one side, flip them over to the other side. Brush them with oil, back in, 15 minutes, out, back in. Now they've been in there for an hour. Now you brush them one more time with oil, sprinkle paprika on them, and Chef Keith's grilled chicken seasoning. Turn the broiler on, stick them back in there, and do them with the broiler until they get crisp on the top. Bring them out, flip them over, one more brush of oil, paprika, Chef Keith seasoning back under the broil. The paprika is real mild, doesn't have a lot of flavor. Use a Hungarian paprika. It helps like kind of crystallize and, and, and darken the skin, and they are phenomenal. So there you go. 
There's a recipe from Jack as a bonus in the uh, sponsored segment today. And now you're probably hungry. We'll get over to Harvest Eating. He'll teach you how to cook in a way that will satisfy that hunger. And I'm going to wrap there. I'm not going to talk about MSB and CSP, CSP Copper and all that stuff. I'm going to get into the main topic. So as I was saying, Rob is going to Washington. And he was summoned there by Congressman Ron Paul to discuss competing currencies. And what Ron Paul wants to do is essentially allow competing currencies. But the thing is, Rob's point is that's already allowed. Ron, I think, wants to formalize it, which in some ways could be good, but Rob's not so hip on that because as soon as the government touches something, they tend to screw it up. Before I say any more, put any words in Rob's mouth, what I actually want to do, and again, I think this speech was already read unless a schedule change happened, and I haven't been able to talk to Rob, and I don't know, but this is his prepared marks that either already were read or will be read on the floor of the House in front of the uh, subcommittee on domestic monetary policy and technology. And um, even if some kind of shenanigans are pulled and he doesn't get to read them, uh, the remarks were submitted and they are already part of congressional record at the time that I'm reading with you here. Uh, I wish Rob was available to do this for you. I wish I had a, just a tape, an audio. I was hoping to be able to do that. Again, I wasn't able to pull that off, so I'm going to have to read them on Rob's behalf. When I do get an audio, I'll, I'll definitely play it for you guys on the air. And maybe we'll get Rob on for an interview about what came from it and, and what happened next. Before I read it though, I wanted to, uh, <laughs> to read these little remarks from Rob's, uh, page, uh, Facebook page. Cause he's been, you know, Facebooking stuff while he's been up there at the Capitol. So this is his posting and it, it says a lot, you know, me. Hi, Congress staff people. Any chance you have a copy of the Constitution on you here? House staff, no, I don't think we have one. We can ask around. Me, not surprised, at the United States Capitol. <sighs> yeah, that does sum it up. So let me go ahead and read Rob's prepared speech to you now. Date August 2nd, 2012. Author Robert J. Gray, Executive Director of the American Open Currency Standard. Reason, testimony before the Subcommittee on Domestic Monetary Policy and Technology. Mr. Chairman and members of the community, committee, My name is Rob Gray, and I was asked to testify today on the theory of competing currencies and the practical challenges that make such a theory difficult or impossible to implement. For nearly five years now, I've successfully directed the American Open Currency Standard, the standard for private, voluntary, and complementary currencies that compete against each other, not against the U.S. dollar. Allow me to clarify, we do not consider AOCS-approved medallions produced and traded in our private barter marketplace competition to the U.S. Federal Reserve note. Because fair competition, as one would find in the free market, assumes the existence of a level playing field, the existence of a standard set of rules. Those players who wish to compete honestly do so by relying simply on the merit and the value that they bring to the market. No fair challenge can be made between honest men and thieves. Let me be clear When I say thieves, I refer to the current private central bank and the members of our the men in government who allow it to exist. This brings us to a critical point. According to your employee handbook, Article 1, Section 8 says, The Congress shall have the power to coin money, regulate the value thereof. For anyone who has been a manager or a business owner, it is not uncommon to find that you may have an employee who may choose to not do the work that is delegated to them, or even that they simply do it very badly. 
When such a time comes, it is necessary for the manager or owner to step in and do the work for themselves. I would argue that since 1913, Congress has failed to do the job with which it has been tasked. We the people are now bypassing you and are no longer waiting for you to make it right. It is far better to simply walk away from the system. We are walking away from toxic thoughts, relationships, investments, and careers. We are taking the hard intellectual journey to rid ourselves of the indoctrination that keeps us in this system. We are realizing that the power we have in ourselves and the everyday choices that we make to either empower some soulless collective or our own families, we are realizing we simply need to withdraw our time, energy, and money from banks, politicians, and corporations that do not serve our interests. In the time since our inception, the American Open Currency Standard has enjoyed nearly five years of growth and success in our mission of issuing a means that allows valuable exchanges among men who produce. In the next five years, we expect to expand our offerings and to increase our ability to keep up with the demand of our private currency. We are doing the job Congress would not. The use of community currencies here in the U.S. became popular back in the early 1930s. You see, at the time, the theory was that a group of the world's most powerful men, many of them international bankers, who internationally and systematically removing currency from circulation, created an artificial scarcity of money across America. Small cities and towns felt it worse than anyone, but life did go on. Then, during the greatest economic depression that this country has ever seen, individuals across this country developed their own mediums of exchange. They still needed things. Food, clothing, daily essentials. They still needed to live. And they didn't have time to wait for a government to fix the problem. And they certainly weren't going to rely on the same bankers that caused the crash to offer solutions. And so, according to the historical records, thousands of community currencies were created, circulated and traded in places where the scarcity of dollars was in, in, inferring, interfering with human desire to live and the market's desire to trade. And since their elected employees were not doing the job for which they were hired, these individuals took it upon themselves to secure the means to their own survival and potential prosperity. More recently, community currencies have sprung up across Europe as the euro and the national fiat currencies become increasingly unavailable and undependable. Today, communities all across the eurozone trade their own money instead of the euro. Community currencies are not simply a good idea in theory. They are necessary, alive, and true examples of the free market's unwillingness to be artificially manipulated. Right now, alternative and complementary currencies circul circulate widely across this country and in many different forms. Ithaca, New York, uses a local fiat currency based loosely on the value of time. Berkshire, Massachusetts, uses a fiat-backed fiat, fiat system While many more communities circulate gold, silver, and copper, AOCIS approved barter tokens as a medium of exchange. How they are issued, accepted, and accounted for and reported varies widely, as the participants and procedures are different as the markets they serve. As for practical issues to overcome the issuance and circulation of complementary currencies, there are plenty. In a voluntary system, those that participate in the trading of private currencies must deal with the possibility of counterfeiting, fraud, scarcity, acceptance, accounting, storage, and other issues. All without the luxury of Big Brother holding a gun to anyone's head to ensure their success.
even with all the risks, the market moves on. As in any free market, good ideas circulate with success and bad ones eventually fade away. Participants voluntarily choose to accept and circulate the highest quality and most valuable currencies in exchange for the best production. Merchants accept complementary currencies based on the premise that someone else is willing to do the same later. Issues arise and are worked out by the market, and with only one light to guide them, the mutual exchange of value. No guns, no laws, no force. Just a willingness to think outside of the box and act on principle. Complementary currencies are not new in theory and practice. Further, private currencies circulated long before governments erected themselves to interfere. What's new, however, is the public's apathy towards you and your policies. You've managed for the last hundred years somehow to convince the citizenry that you are relevant. Now, just recently, we are beginning to see the tides change on this. And once it catches on, you'll be rendered completely obsolete. The greatest hurdle you will face over the next few years is trying to convince we, the people, that you are still necessary in spite of your failures to get the job done. Sure, some will continue to rely on you for handouts. It's what, they're, what they've known their entire lives, and they will be slaves right up to the point of their own destruction. They don't know any better, and I don't blame them for their ignorance. But as you continue to squeeze the life out of the middle class, watch out for their greatest weapon, apathy. They may not be ready to admit it, but soon they'll turn their backs on you. And never believe another lie. The lie that you are willing and able to do a job for which you were hired. In the future, you will not have to worry about million man marches or citizen journalists trying to catch you on camera. What you need to fear is no one paying attention to you. The next American Revolution will not be fought with bullets and bombs. It will be won with the opposite consciousness. It is well enough that the people of this nation do not understand our banking, uh, banking and monetary system. For if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. Henry Ford. To that end, I am here today to propose a solution. My understanding of this subcommittee is you desire to be part of the solution. You want to believe you're doing something good for the country. Today, the greatest gift you can offer the people you clearly represent is to introduce not to the legislation, but directly to the public, what I call IR-1207, Individual Resolution 1207, commonly referred to as Ignore the Fed. Store your wealth in silver. Bank with a non-fractional bank that pays real money on deposits. Use the card services network to satisfy dollar obligations. Do not try to compete with the Federal Reserve System. Ignore them. This country has been successful in doing away with two central banks already over the course of history. It is learning to do the same again. Congressman Paul, on July 13, 2011, you asked Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke a question. Is gold money? I asked that same question of, of you here today. Is gold money? Is silver money? They most certainly are not. At least not by the current definition handed down by Congress, money, money issuing surrogate, the Federal Reserve. And frankly, that's just fine. I respectfully petition you, sir, to seriously re reconsider your position on this matter. The government has prevented, perverted the word money. My wife is a nutritionist and she tells people, if your grandparents wouldn't recognize it as food, don't eat it. 
I suppose that that if you are if your great grandparents wouldn't recognize it as money, don't accept it and spend it. A great philosopher once said, "When destroyers appear among men, they start by destroying money." Today, conventional wisdom tells us that money is a worthless pile of paper. And for the last 100 years, Congress has for a third time, again, shunned its responsibility when it comes to issuing money. Since the creation of the Federal Reserve and Congress's abdication of their responsibility, the dollar has lost 98% of its value. I don't suspect anyone would call that a stellar job performance. I must be blunt and say that as employees, Congress... You have not been successful in your charge to, quote, coin money and regulate the value of, end quote. And therefore, your services in this area are no longer needed. It is sad that even the men and women in this chamber either do not understand the system they serve or are so dependent upon the system's favors, they dare not speak in opposition to it. Quote, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it, end quote. Upton Sinclair. I ask you to leave the Fed their money and leave the people our silver, gold, and copper. Do not push to redefine whatever representations we choose for our wealth as money. Let the Fed do what it wants with their money so long as they leave us alone. I warn you, honest money legislation is a wolf in sheep's clothing. The record of Congress over time has proven that it will make a miserable failure of this aspect of human survival as it has so many others. The greatest thing con this greatest thing this Congress can do is exactly what you've done so far. Nothing. I will not facilitate this government's help understand, control and ultimately destroy alternative currencies. All I ask is that you stay out of our way. The people in our world are happy to go right along saving you from your own destruction by producing value against all the odds, regulations, codes, and challenges thrown our way. But leave our money alone. It doesn't belong to you, and it never will. If you really want to help, I would recommend that instead of trying to do something, you could start by undoing some things. But that list is far too long for me to get into here today as a responsible employer. I'll allow you some room for creativity. One last thing I would like to leave you all to ponder. How is it possible for every single person in the world to be in debt with credit card debt, student debt, consumer debt, auto debt, and mortgages? How is it possible that every small business and corporation in the world is also in debt? And finally, how is it possible that every single local county, uh, local county, province, state, and nation on earth is also on debt? Who owns the other side of that debt? When you understand that, maybe, just maybe, something positive will come out of this chamber. The bottom line is simple. Humanity is not going to wait for permission to survive. Things that cannot go on forever won't. The market will move on with or without you. And based on your rate of success to date, our preference is without you. I thank you for your attention to this matter of life and death. There are thousands of hacking at branches of evil. There are thousands hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root. Henry David Thoreau. Well, there you go, guys. I hope I did a good job reading it. Since I didn't write it, I stumbled a few times. 
But that is what our good friend, and he is a good friend not just to me, but to the show uh, and to the TSP community, Rob Gray, uh, just told or soon will tell the United States Congress. And all I can say is who freaking raw. And a logical response to what Rob has to say from the average thinking person that says, you know, I don't want uh, things the way they are now, but I also think we need some sort of order and regulation and semblance. So how can we possibly have competing currencies exist with the current system? Won't the current system go after them and attack them? And Rob's response is yes. So understand their own system better than they do and make sure you keep your nose clean. This is why when Rob was part of the Liberty Dollar back in the day, he eventually walked away from it because the people behind it with him were, were not paying attention. And you can see where the guy that was the head of that movement ended up. He ended up in federal prison. Many people, when that happened, said, oh, see, this is the government. No, they, they, look, there's video of this man passing off silver coins as U.S. currency. It's very clear. I mean, his own videos, he took the videos himself so they were admissible because he did the video himself in a public place. Um, you know, going, that's the new silver $10. And people taking it as though it were currency. And understand when people go, well, $10, an ounce of silver is worth, you know, 28 bucks a day. But at the time he was doing it, an ounce of silver was worth $6. So it would be akin today to us producing a silver coin that says $100 on it with a dollar symbol and everything else, and then going up to a merchant and say, this is a new U.S. $100 coin, and passing it off. be a little harder to do at that denomination, but that's what that guy did. So the first thing we have to understand is that if we're going to have competing currency systems, we have to understand their, their system of thievery. And then you have to build an honest system that you know, basically keeps its nose clean, according to their rules, with an understanding of they can change the rules. But as they change the rules, we have to think ahead. We have to start playing chess, like I keep telling you guys. We're playing checkers, and they're playing three-dimensional space chess, and we wonder why they're kicking our ass. Well, this is why. Rob's a chess player, and he's thinking, and he's thinking in the right direction. And what the vision is, is at some point that the people of the world, not just with AOCS, but with many other forms of currency many other forms of competing value would be able to bank on just about anything. Um, let's start out with, okay, if I was allowed to basically gut the Congress and the Senate, just get rid of them all, just get them out of there, throw the lobbyists out, throw everybody out, replace them with good men and women that would do the right thing for their country simply because they view what they're doing as service. And if I could replace the president as well, and if I could get the traitors off of the Supreme Court and I had an honest system to work with, I know it's a pipe dream. I know it's not likely. But let's, for the sake of argument, to understand the big picture, assume that it could be done with the wave of a magic wand. This is a great way to plan business development, IT development. So let's use it to plan governmental development. And you said, okay, Jack, now build a currency system. Many people would say, well, the easy answer is just use gold. Well, there's only so much gold in it. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, elasticity there and flexibility, so you bring in silver. Now you have a bimetallic standard. The problem when you have a bimetallic standard, and this is what led to the crime of 1873, is you're trying to fix the value of gold and silver, not just to your currency, your unit of exchange, but to each other. So as one rises or, or, or falls in, in reference to the other, Gresham's Law takes over, and that one is hoarded. So you always think, well, it's, it's gold that rises in value against silver, but it's not necessarily the case. 
if you set a fixed definitive measurement, and I'm going to say this is not what it was, but it's the easiest way to understand it because there's not actually a full ounce of silver or ounce of gold in a gold coin from the period. But basically, on the most basic components, it was about a 20 to 1 ratio, or actually a 16 to 1 ratio, so that you had a, a, a $20 gold coin and a $1 silver coin that were roughly the same value for U.S. currency in the 1800s. Okay, now when silver went into a shortage of mining and gold went into the gold rush and there was more gold all of a sudden in the market than there was silver, the value of silver never became as high as gold, right? But it rose in relation to gold. And when that happened, people started saying the silver coin is worth more than the number printed on it, right? Just like 1965, same thing. Even though silver wasn't pulled out of the circulation yet, right? People started to hoard silver, and there became a silver coin shortage. And then silver was demonetized, and all money was gold. So we've been through that before. So if we only have two things in a currency system, we get into that world. Now, if we add a third component, which has actually always been there and was part of our coinage uh, right up until 1982, as the as the cent. We had copper. We still get the same fluctuation. So the only way for a currency system to truly be backed by commodities like gold, silver, copper, palladium, platinum, bronze, soybeans, peanuts, beef, timber, whatever, is for those individual components to have their own assessed value. And for that value to be allowed to float. And here's what happens. And this is why... They don't, when I say they, I mean the people in charge don't like the idea of honest systems like this. There is very little to no profit for most exchanges. Think about it. If I am going to sell you, let's say, a five-pound package of grass-fed ground beef, and you say to me, in my account, I have a lot of things, But one of the things that I have is I have contracts for grain or, or, uh, or for hay, for hay, because it's grass-fed beef, right? I have contracts for hay. And I know that you, you feed your cattle on grass, but there's times of the year where you need some hay to supplement their feed. I'll give you some hay, portion of my hay, for your beef. And I say, okay, now where's the profit? Who made a profit? Technically, nobody made a profit. What is the value of the beef and hay? Why would I sell it to you for less than a value? Why would you give me more hay than the value of the beef? We've just made an exchange of equal value. You know, the IRS says you have to report barter as profit. If it's profitable, though. If you and your neighbor each have a tree, and your yard is an apple tree and their yard is a pear tree, And you fill up a bucket full of apples and they fill up a bucket full of pears and you guys exchange them over the fence. Even if you were the kind of person that will nitpick and report every single thing, what would you report as profit? What do you think the apples were worth? I don't know. At the store, 10 bucks, maybe? Yeah. What do you think the pears were worth? Well, I think they were worth about 10 bucks. That's why we made the exchange. If, if you're even thinking in monetary value, you would always try to make an exchange based on common value. So what do you tax now? There's no money. There's no cash. 
since there's no cash transaction, there's no sales tax for the state. Since the Internal Revenue Service wants to tax you for gains and you've not gained anything, there's no tax. Well, why can't that vision be taken larger? Now, if I was going to do it at the national level, I'll admit that a government needs the ability to tax on some level. There are certain things governments should be doing. Very basic research. Like, yes, Mr. Obama, the research that led to the creation of the Internet, though you had nothing to do with it at all. Okay, even though you wanted to talk about in your speech where you told me that I didn't build the business that I've built, somebody else paved the way for me. All right? We need the government doing things like that. They generally will not get done by private entities because they're in such infantile stages, they don't really see the, the, the vision for the future. And every once in a while, the government will hit a home run with one. And once they've developed it for the public, they need to give it to the public, get the hell out of the way, and let the public do something with it. Because it's not the government that made the Internet that we know today. It was the government that did the research to allow computers to communicate with each other. It was podcasters that took talk radio-style programming to a new level. It was people behind the creation of YouTube that took video to a new level, and entertainment and education and enlightenment to a new level. It was companies like Amazon that changed the way that people do business, the way commerce is done. And from the small person to the giant corporation... It, it, all of that was done, not by government, but by the public. So in a system where you want that type of thing done, and I do think the government should maintain roads. Some people will disagree with me on that, but I would say this. If the government only had 10% of the money that it gets today, not the debt, just the money that it collects in, and it focused on building roads, seeing to the actual needs of national defense, And even let's let them run the schools. And they had 10% of the money that they get. And those were the only three things they did. And I'm talking federal, state, and local at this point. Guess what? We'd have the best schools, the best roads, and the best military in the world, bar none. And then maybe they could leave us alone. So if I wanted to do that, in my perfect world that does not exist, what would I do? How would I create money? I have talked about monetary creation before and has led some people to believe that I am a, a person that's what they would call a greenback. Right? I believe the government should just print money, true fiat money, no debt attached to it, and that's not true. In essence, that's what I think should be done, but it should be backed by something, and it should be backed by the economy itself. What are our gold reserves? What is the value of the nation's gold reserves in Fort Knox, in the ground, everywhere? What's the value of our silver reserves? What's the value of our timberland, our farmland? Because all exchange is done based on the value of the economy that the trade's being done with. And this nation has enormous wealth, far more than enough wealth to put together a commodity basket system to back our currency on and effectively cap it. What actually destroys the value of a currency is printing too many units of it. We could actually print, let's say, $16 trillion in America today. $16 trillion, that would be enough to pay off for debt. Pay it off. Here, take it, go away. All right? Let the money come back in through whatever channels it does, and then print another $10 trillion. As the money comes back from overseas, when it's been used to pay off the debt, just get rid of it. And say we have $10 trillion in America today, that's it. There ain't no more. And the currency would stabilize and equalize. And that money could be backed by nothing other 
than the good faith and credit of the American people. It could be loaned, it could be repaid, it could earn interest, it could do whatever it wants, and the money would be stable. Now listen, none of these systems, and I think this is where some people go awry, none of them lead to economic utopia. None of them lead to a place where everybody has enough and everything's just wonderful. That is freaking Disneyland, okay? It doesn't exist. There will always be people that are too lazy to work, and those people will suffer for it. There will always be people that aren't quite up to speed mentally, and they will suffer for it. There will be people that are genuinely in need of help, and it is our duty as fellow citizens to help them. And I think we can do a better job of doing it than the government, because we can determine the person that really needs the help, and the person that just doesn't want to do anything. And if the government was out of our face and not taking such a big portion of what we have, we could see to that. But it would not be a utopia, but it would be a stable currency. It would be a currency where a saver could be rewarded for saving instead of punished for saving. It would be a, a, a currency that if you put $100,000 in your mattress, because that's what you wanted to do, 10 years later, you'd still have $100,000. Today, you still have $100,000 in numeric value, but you don't have $100,000 anymore. Ten years from now, effectively, you have $50,000. That's the system we live in. So I would create a stable currency. If it's backed by gold, silver, and copper, fine. If it's backed by everything on the planet, fine. I don't care as long as it's capped so that it cannot be printed ad, ad infinitum and then used as a backdoor tax on the market. So that's what I would do. But they're not going to do it. Rob's right. They don't have any interest in doing it. Why would they? See, it would rein them in. This is what I think people miss the connection between liberty and economics. It's not just the banking cartel's power that we're fighting when we look at the economy. It's the government's. By having the power to continuously print money at will, to continuously borrow money at will, it empowers all the crap they do that you don't want them doing. Trust me, the big, giant, bloated departments of government that are getting in people's faces, and again, federal, state, local, county, all of this, right? Because it's not federal authorities, at least yet, that are going and harassing a woman because she has a front yard garden. It's a local authority doing this. They wouldn't have the power to employ code officials to be so useless that they have time to worry about this because there'd be a lot less of them. They'd have to actually do things like just make sure houses aren't going to fall on top of people. That would be that would be what code enforcement did. Is this safe? Is this a fire hazard or a collapse hazard? Or you know, are there like 500 cats living in this house? Or is it full of rats? Is it a disease? You know, stuff that they should actually do. That's all they would have the money to do. Because anything they wanted to do beyond that scope, they'd have to figure out where to get the money from, and they would have to tax to get the money. You see, they do that now. No, they tax and borrow. See, it's the borrow component that allows them to exceed their charter. And that's where the problems lie. And I want to bounce this off you today. This might be the most important thing I ever tell you about monetary systems, ever. Ever have or may ever do before. We know that our money is created by lending, by borrowing, by the issuance of a bond. When the government needs more money, it sells treasury bonds. They're bought by everybody from, from Bank of America to little old ladies in their retirement and uh, the Chinese, the British, the Europeans, whoever we can get to buy one of these damn things, we sell them on to. They give us money, and then that is how we get money. And then when we want new money, more money, we want to expand it, Federal Reserve buys the bond, 
takes receivership of it, but when they buy the bond, they don't tender money. They just enter a journal entry, and new money's created out of thin air. We know that's how that works. But in the past, if you had asked me what a bond is, I would have told you it is a promise to pay in the future. And that's how it's defined. I heard somebody, don't remember who it was, and I don't even know if he understood the profoundness of what he said. But it was on Russia Today, RT, and he said a bond is a promise to tax. Now, he didn't complete that sentence. I would say that a bond is a promise to pay if you're Ford Motor Company and you issue a corporate bond. It's a, it's a promise to pay. Ford Motor Company produces something, a car. They sell it. They earn a profit. They use the money just like shareholder money, only it works differently. And they say, uh, Mr. Investor, if you will invest uh, $100,000 in Ford, we will pay you back five years later with interest. And the source of that money will be revenue from the company. And even if we have to cut wages or whatever, we will make good on our obligation and pay the debt, just like we would to a bank. So a bond issued by a producer is a promise to pay from production. But your government doesn't produce anything now, does it? I mean, your government doesn't produce anything. You say, well, they build roads and schools, but they don't produce it. They take the wealth from the American people and they build it. They don't then sell it. They don't generate revenue. The government should never be allowed to talk about raising revenue because that's that's just bullshit, right? Revenue is raised by providing a service or a good to a customer who buys it from you, who purchases it willingly. The United States people do not purchase services from the government. They have their money taken and the services shoved down their throat, whether we want to have them or not. And that's that's the truth. So they should have to call it what it is, taxation. I'd like to propose, I am not for new laws, but I'd like to propose one today. I'd like to see a law passed in Congress and the Senate and signed by the President that said the, that says the United States government is banned, banned from using the term revenue when referring to money taken from people or corporations operating in the United States of America. It's not revenue. It's not revenue because you haven't provided anything in return for it. No one asked you for what you're giving them. And the person paying the bill is generally not the one receiving the service. When you take my money and you use it to put a guardrail on the side of a road that doesn't need one in the middle of nowhere, where nobody drives anyway to keep people from going into a dam that was never built and never will be built, I've paid for something that no one gets any use from. But when you take my money and you use it to subsidize overseas countries that don't even like us, They're getting the benefit of my money. That's not revenue. That's wealth redistribution. That's taxation. That's what the government should have to call it. So moving on to these private currencies, how can we make this work? I think that the work AOCS is doing is amazing. And I think that we're only beginning to see the edge of what it's there. I think that when you look at AOCS today, take a coin out of your pocket, a penny, a nickel, a dime, a silver round, any coin, and hold it up and look at it from the edge. And I think that's what we've seen so far from some of the conversations I've had with Rob. Now, holding that coin in your hand, you could do this with a pencil or a pen or anything that's relatively thin in one dimension. Just look at the thinnest dimension. Turn it about 10, 15 degrees, and notice how much more is really there. Now turn it another 10 or 15 degrees. Now turn it on a 90-degree angle. 
You see the change? Turn it till it's, it's now thin again on one dimension and look at the other side. I think that's what we're beginning to see from AOCS. And I think that, I think that a lot of the members of this audience, and as, as they begin to do some of the things that they're working on now, uh, I'm going to get Rob back on to tell you about it. I think you're going to start to see that coin turn and start to realize how much more is there. But what I love about Rob is he's not like, okay, AOCS is like what everybody should do. He's like, I'm going to put my system out there and compete on the merits of my system. And if you have another one, God bless you. Go for it. Go nuts. Because it will make all of our systems better. See, that's free market. That's a free market. There hasn't been a free market in this country in a very, very long time, folks. There really hasn't. There's no free market when you're told what is and is not your money. But, see, the thing is, we've been told that and we've believed it, but it doesn't make it true. I'd like to share with you something now I call, I think I've done it before, uh, Spirico's Law of Economic Reality. Okay. And this is my, this is mine. I've created this and I think that, that this is something that we should be teaching in economics classes today and at the college level and probably starting at the high school level. People should know this as well as they know old cliches like a penny saved is a penny earned, which isn't true anymore thanks to the way they run things. But here it is. Government can and does convince people that something without value has value, but it cannot convince people that something that has value doesn't have value. Now, that might seem like not a big deal, but it really is if you think about what it means. What I mean by that is your government can convince you that a piece of paper with Andrew Jackson's picture on it has a value of $20, and it might as well be space credits for whatever that means. But they can convince you of it so much that if you take that bill to a store Goods and services will be exchanged for it, even though we all know the paper is nothing but a certificate for debt plus interest, which is essentially worthless because it's a debt that cannot be repaid. So how much is a is a how much is an IOU worth if you know the person that, that's that's leveraged against the IOU can't pay it? So if I came to you and said, "Hey, Bill, um, I have this IOU for twenty dollars." And I know I owe you $20, but I can't pay you right now, but can I give you this IOU? And you might say, well, who owes the money? And if I say, Sam does, right, our Uncle Sam from yesterday, and you know Sam doesn't have any money and never will have any money and never pays his debts, would you take that paper in exchange? Well, no, of course not. You'd be like, I don't want that. That's worthless. It's useless. But with something called the legal tender law, the government passed a law and has successfully convinced the people of this nation that something that's worthless has value in his money. Okay, And they can successfully do that. It's important to understand when you're dealing with people as competitors, as oppressors, as common citizens, as, as contemporaries, whoever you're dealing with, it's, it's important to know their capabilities and their things that they're not capable of especially if you're going to compete with them or deal with them in an adversarial uh, relationship, which in many instances, that's where we're at with our government today, adversarial relationship. So we know they can convince people that something that's not worth something or worth very little is worth more than it is. And we know they can successfully do that because they've done it. They've done it for a 100 years. That's a success. Even though it's a failure morally, and it's a failure for the middle class, and it's a failure for most of the people of the nation, it's still been done successfully. 
You can do something wrong successfully. You could shoot a person in the face with a shotgun successfully, even though you should never have done it. It doesn't mean you're not successful at it, especially if that's what you wanted to do. So they can do that. The other part of Spirico's Law of Economics, though, is they cannot convince people, at least for any length of time, that something that is valuable has no value. They tried it in 1965. They changed the currency once again. Silver coin became clad coin. A piece of copper wrapped around with some other alloys, and a quarter was one quarter from a year ago was silver, and the other quarter was this new copper-clad piece of crap. And uh, they told people they're worth the same amount of money. Don't you worry about it. The President of the United States even threatened the American people. Don't you hoard that. We need that money in circulation. And it dried up like that, didn't it? People yanked that crap right out of circulation. At the time, the silver in the coins wasn't really worth much more than the face value. Think about that. A silver quarter in 1965-1966 had about 25 cents worth of silver in it. Of course it did. That's how the system was designed up to that point. The other quarter, which you could go stick in a soda machine or go buy something with, bought the same stuff. But yet people, with Gresham's Law, once again, bringing its head, knew intrinsically that the new quarter was not worth as much as the old quarter. And just because they passed a law and told the people this thing is no more valuable than the new thing didn't make it true, people didn't believe it. And if you want to know why I've spent that much time on that today, it's because that is where the success of alternative currencies lie. You've been convinced by your government and its private central bank, the Federal Reserve, that the only thing that's money is paper that they say is money. But if I have a Japanese bill or a Chinese bill, even if there's a currency exchange that would be worked out and I go try to spend it in America today, they won't take it used to be wherever you went, people would take dollars. That's not so much true anymore. So we realize that these currencies are the things that aren't money, and our barter currencies are the things that are money, and then we start to have to ask ourselves, what makes money money in the first place? You know, I'm in agreement with Rob when he tells Ron Paul, don't ask the chairman of the Federal Reserve if gold is money and, and, and even want him to say yes. Money is not a thing. Money is an agreement. It's an agreement by society, no matter how large or small that society is, on a common unit of exchange. If a bunch of you guys get together out there, a bunch of beer buddies get together, and decide that 22 ammunition has value, and at current market rate, you'd say it's worth a shell, 22 shell is worth two pennies, two cents. So a box of 22 shells, 50 rounds, is a buck, right? Okay? And you guys start using it for everything you do business with with each other for. I can see you guys playing poker. You know, I raise a brick, right? It's, it's money. And it's money inside your little society, your little economy. And if you guys have a guy in there that is, runs a coffee shop and he sells you coffee for 22 shells, it's money. You could even have a whole ammo buck system. It could be made up, you know, 3006 round could be 50 cents. You know, 300 Weatherby could be a dollar. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be, you guys could go down and print your own money. You could. There's nothing stopping anybody from doing that today. 
Uh, you have to worry about counterfeiting, but if it's a closed group and you know where it comes from, you know how much there is, and everything's sequentially numbered, you could literally print local currency, e even a local barter currency network that's not even the whole, like, like not Ithaca, but just like your own group. There's, there's nothing stopping anybody from doing that. And the reason is because the government cannot convince you for long that something doesn't have value just because they say it doesn't. And it's interesting how they always want to tax stuff. So it's not worth anything, but yet yeah, we, we want to get a tax on it. So part of playing that game is, well, look, you guys said this was not worth anything. So there's, there's no tax because it's worthless. It's not money. And as long as it's not money, it's not money. And unless I monetize it by selling it and going outside of my barter economy, it's not money. And if they say, well, report it, Okay, great, I'll report it. Last year, and this is not real numbers, I'm just pulling, if it got big enough and successful enough, last year I, uh, I accepted $25,000 in barter, but I exchanged $25,000 worth of value in barter, so I made zero. So I need to pay you guys tax on zero, right? See? That's how this would work if it's done right and if it's done smart. There's no profit. It's an equal exchange. There's no profit in an equal exchange. Let's say two people have a car, okay? Each have their own car. And I want your car. And you say, I want $10,000 for my car. If I give you $10,000 cash, that's a taxable event, is it not? Right? Because I, you have exchanged your car for currency in their system, under their rules, right? What if I say... I like your car, do you like my car? And you go, I like your car, but your car's not as nice as my car. And I go, I also have a motorcycle in my garage. Come take a look at it. And you look at it, and you, and you go, well, you don't want the motorcycle? I go, no, I've gotten kind of crazy lately, and I've almost killed myself a couple times, and I'm afraid. I want to get rid of the motorcycle, too. And you look at the motorcycle in the car, and you go, I would take your car and your motorcycle for my car. And we, we exchange that. Is there a taxable event? Well, what was the value of the car and the motorcycle estimated at? $10,000. What was the value of the car received? $10,000. Was anything monetized? No. No tax. Where's the tax going to come from? Nobody's profited. But you can't be convinced that your car and your motorcycles don't have value. What if you need someone to do graphic design work for you? Make you up some logos and they would normally charge you $500. But you're an attorney and they need some legal paperwork drawn up to do something in their business. And you say, I'll give you, I do my work for $100 an hour. I will give you five hours to be used whenever you want to of my time in return for this graphic. There's no profit. There's no profit. But can you be convinced that the time of a competent attorney has no value? Can you be convinced that the time of a competent An artistic graphic designer that can do great work has no value. No, they can't convince you that it has no value. If we want to move on to something like silver, and I say, well, I cut grass for a living, and you say, I'll pay you in silver, and I say, fine. I haven't made a profit. Because what was the cost to render the labor? 50 bucks. Was the value of the silver collected? 50 bucks even exchange. The minute the government sticks their paws into this, that all goes away. And I'm going to get emails from accountants and stuff like that to tell me you don't quite have this right. And there's certain things that would have to be done to pin this down when done on a large scale to make it right. And certainly they would come after it. There's, I'm not saying they wouldn't. But what I'm telling you is 
There's also the reality that if you and your if you're giving your neighbor tomatoes for ten you know silver dimes, it's, it's not anybody's business. There's no record of it. So there's there's that component as well. But but the entire point here is the reason that competing currencies can exist is because they allow for the exchange of value for value. And in a, such a system, you could actually get to a point where there would be taxable events. Merchants clearly want to make a profit. okay? And merchants have to pay for things that are probably going to be outside of their network. So at some point, if a merchant's taking silver, at some point they have to take some of that silver and they have to monetize it. And then they monetize it based on a certain formula and then they pay a tax on it. And they pay a tax when they monetize it. And when they spend the money that they require, you know, I mean, there's ways to do this. I'm not smart enough to know how. That's why I'm glad people like Rob are out there. I mean, I really am. I don't know exactly how to do this and keep it all clean and legal within the system. But there are people that do. And even if there's taxable events, they can be mitigated. What you think you have to understand, again, is you have to understand the capabilities of the other side of any equation, any kind of an opponent or competitor that you're dealing with. What are their capabilities? Well, the government has a lot of strength and a lot of capabilities, and they have to be respected for that. And we have to play by their rules because, frankly, we put them there. I know you're saying, I didn't put them there. Well, I didn't either, but we collectively did. As I've been saying a lot this week, we did this even if we didn't want to because those people you point at and go, them? No, they're we. We're all in this boat together, folks. So we have to understand that, and, and we have to understand that people are only ready for so much change at a time But in Rob's words, I'm not ready to wait any longer. I'm ready to start doing something different now. And I think that that's a huge solution. And I don't think it necessarily has to be big things like AOCS. I'm a proud supporter of what they're doing. But I'll tell you, you make as big an impact if you cut hair and you start exchanging babysitting for haircuts. It's as big as an impact. Because you're also building community and you're sharing the concept of honest value. And every single time anybody takes those types of events and creates a common medium of exchange and creates yet another competing currency, all of them get more strong. All of them get more powerful. And I'm very excited to be living at a time when people are beginning to wake up to this. So I encourage you to learn more about it. I encourage you to barter Uh, not just with silver and gold and copper, folks. Barter with your friends, you know? Even sometimes in a way that you wouldn't normally need to. If you're a mechanic and your buddy needs some help on his car, you know, figure out what he's good at. Say, hey, help me out with this. Introduce him to the concept of barter. I'd really be really willing to do this for nothing, but I'd like to like get you thinking this way. So since you repair fishing rods and I have one with some broken eyes on it, here, fix my rod and I'll fix your car. It's the way this country used to be. It wasn't that long ago that that was always going on alongside the monetary system. Much of what I teach on this show is simply going back to the way your grandparents and great-grandparents thought. This is no different. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. 
Shut it.